Welcome to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. In this podcast, we break down high-profile celebrity estate planning cases for advisors and their clients. Most celebrity estate catastrophes are based on the same issues that everyday people face, just with the volume turned up. Our goal is to identify and extract the individual estate planning issues that lie at the heart of each story. We then discuss what advisors should expect and how to avoid common pitfalls. Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lenock. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of WealthManagement.com's Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. For anyone new to the podcast, in each installment, myself and a guest take on a different celebrity estate and attempt to extract some key lessons that planners can apply to their more traditional clients. The idea being that celebrity estate planning stories although often ridiculous in their details, generally have at their cores very basic issues that can just as easily apply to non-famous or fabulously wealthy clients. Our guest this week is Gina Nelson. Gina is a senior vice president, head of fiduciary services at Chilton Trust Company. An estate planning attorney by background, she spent the last 15 years in various roles with corporate trust companies, both in the U.S. and offshore. As head of fiduciary, she works with clients as a trusted advisor on all elements of their estate and financial plans. Thanks so much for joining us, Gina. Thank you for having me. Our subject this week is the original Superman himself, Christopher Reeve. Reeve was an actor, director, and activist, best known for playing the title role in 1978's Superman and its three sequels. On May 27, 1995, Reeve tragically broke his neck when he was thrown from a horse during an equestrian competition in Culpeper, Virginia. The injury paralyzed him from the shoulders down, and he used a wheelchair and a ventilator for the rest of his life. However, in a manner befitting a real superhero, Reeve didn't let this catastrophe ruin him. He continued to live a highly public life dedicated to helping others, particularly those suffering from severe spinal cord injuries. After the accident, he lobbied for spinal cord injury research, including human embryonic stem cell research, and for better insurance coverage for people with disabilities. His advocacy work included founding and leading the Christopher Reeve Foundation and co-founding the Reeve Irvine Research Center. The Christopher Reeve Foundation is dedicated to curing spinal cord injury by funding innovative research and improving quality of life for people living with paralysis through grants, information, education, and advocacy. Reeve sadly died on October 10th, 2004, shortly after his 52nd birthday. His widow, Dana, headed the Christopher Reeve Foundation after his death. Although not a smoker, she sadly died of lung cancer at age 44 in 2006, and the foundation was subsequently renamed the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation. Their children, Matthew, Alexandra, and William, all currently serve on the board of directors of the foundation. The clients with severe spinal cord injuries aren't exactly common. The Reeve Foundation offers a wealth of planning information that is relevant and broadly applicable to anyone living with a disability. One of the key, more universally applicable planning items highlighted by the foundation is the oft-misinterpreted but extremely useful special needs trust. Gina, before we go deeper, do you mind giving our audience an overview of what exactly a special needs trust is? Sure. A special needs trust is really a trust that's set up to benefit a disabled individual in such a way that they can continue to qualify for government benefits, which usually includes Medicaid, SSI, you know, any other programs which are specific to their disability, while having access to trust funds for any items that are not covered by those government programs. So that means things like travel, um, including bringing along a companion if that's needed, social events, camps, cell phones, treatments or therapies that aren't otherwise covered, specialized equipment, anything outside of really the basic needs that are going to be covered by those government benefits. 
the key to these trusts, which is why they're sometimes also called supplemental needs trusts, and we use that sort of interchangeably, supplemental needs or special needs, is that the trust is there to supplement but not supplant the government assistance. And that's often the language that you'll find in those trust documents. In order to make sure that happens, the beneficiary can't be entitled to income or principal, so there can't be mandatory distributions. Instead, the trustee has to have discretion to make payments only to cover the special needs of the beneficiary beyond what they're receiving as part of those programs. So, you know, I think you, you highlighted this a little bit in the two names of the trust, right? Special needs versus supplemental needs. You know, when we're talking about lesser able people, there's a lot of sort of politically correct talk that goes on. We talk around what to call someone like who has sort of an issue. And that can get caught up in between what we use in casual conversation and sort of the actual legal definition of the term special needs. Whereas, you know, in normal conversation, when you say someone has special needs, generally, I think most people think that somebody is sort of mentally handicapped in some way. Whereas the special needs trust and who it can be useful for is, is a far larger audience than that. Absolutely. And you highlighted that in your example, Christopher Reeve, it was not a mental disability, but a physical one. And that happens quite often. So special needs trust can be used across the board in a variety of circumstances, whether it be mental incapacity, physical incapacity, combinations thereof. And, and sometimes it's not full sort of disability, but to your point where they need assistance and qualify for these government programs. So, you know, this is, you've mentioned government programs a few times, and that's one of the unique aspects of the special needs or, or supplemental needs trust, right? In that it's meant to work in concert with government programs, whereas I think a lot of normal trusts are sort of meant to be their own sort of pillar of the estate plan. This one has a very sort of specific purpose with an outside entity. Exactly. And that's really the key when somebody's thinking about their estate planning and their overall estate planning, when they have somebody, a loved one with a disability. As you said, I mean, sort of general planning doesn't involve planning to help somebody qualify for assistance or keep those qualifications. And so it really does require some specialized planning. You know, the worst case scenario is that you just do sort of boilerplate estate planning. You haven't done anything special. A disabled person receives these assets outright, and that can mean a couple of things. A, that that disqualifies them from any of the benefits they might have been receiving, but B, it might also mean that there needs to be a court-appointed guardian to help them invest those assets, make decisions about them, enter into contracts, enter into investments, that sort of thing. And that's really what you sort of want to try to avoid, and that's what you do avoid by setting up the special needs trust. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting aspect of it, right? Because there's a very defined failure case here that can impact the beneficiary pretty heavily. Whereas with a normal trust, I mean, obviously there's failure cases. And generally that's, oh, you're not going to get these assets or I'm going to have to pay taxes on them. Whereas in this case, the failure case is sort of, oh, I've screwed up your government benefits now. Like I have actually done damage to you. Which is exactly. really an interesting thing to keep in mind. Exactly. And that is why the planning for this is so important. And it's also really important that the attorney they work with understands the ins and outs of this. A lot of this stuff varies from state to state. And if you're looking at an attorney who does more generalized planning or even specialized planning, but not in this area, it's just really tough to keep track of any changes, anything, any specific benefits available in the state and that sort of thing. So it really does require some specialized knowledge, which even varies from state to state. And in addition to that specialized knowledge, I mean, like any trust document or some of the power of the special needs trust is 
the flexibility and the ability to kind of do whatever you want in a, within reason. But that requires to do it properly a certain amount of knowledge of, of exactly what your client's lifestyle is going to be, exactly what their limitations are and what their needs are. That's exactly. And those are all of the things that you have to plan around. Also keeping in mind that the trust may not just be dealing with financial needs, but also a living situation. So for example, if the disabled child has lived in the home with the parents and the parents want the child to be able to continue to live there, the trust needs to address things like that. Will the trust own the home going forward? And if so, is it funded with sufficient assets to be able to maintain the home over the child's lifetime? Will they need in-home care that won't be covered by any of the government programs that, that we've mentioned? So all of these things really need to be taken into account as you're setting up your estate plan. Yeah. And so you know, this sort of stuff necessitates, I think, one of the drums that we bang on this show pretty steadily is the need for communication between both between clients and professionals and between professionals in different fields. Or if we're presuming here that much of our audience is financial advisors on this show, so you know, we sort of target them. Here we have the case of you know a financial advisor who realizes that you know I have a client who has a disabled child and they're going to need a special needs trust set up for them. So that he now is going to he's not going to do it himself. He's going to go find, like you said, an expert in the jurisdiction for setting these things up so it gets done right. But now that requires him to have a deep communication with the client if he doesn't already have it, so that they get all the details right and all the needs are covered. And then on top of that. He has to adeptly communicate that in the game of telephone to the attorney, who then has to draft it to reflect those things. And that's like two very difficult tasks that that many advisors are are not great at either of them, and they have to do both. Exactly. And it's really important to make sure in those conversations, like you said, there there are things other than just the regular financial issues that advisors are used to dealing with, right? The, the parents or loved ones of a disabled person are going to have other concerns. And so it's key, I think, for advisors to really hear out those concerns and make sure those are conveyed, as you said, when they're speaking with the attorney, you know, so that the attorney has that full picture and make sure that they're addressing concerns beyond just the financial, but also the you know the living situation, the mental well-being of the beneficiary going forward, any type of community things that they're involved in, enrichment programs that that they've had throughout their lives, those sorts of things again all need to be communicated and made sure that they're addressed when putting together the the special needs trust and any other pieces of the estate plan. So that I mean that's an enormous amount of information that needs to be sort of conveyed across several people. How do you go about, and it's not an easy conversation to start either, how do you go about starting that conversation with clients? I think one of the things that I've generally found with people who have a loved one who is disabled is that's usually top of mind and something that they bring up because it's a a concern, right? And it's a concern when they're thinking about their financial future. It's a concern when they're thinking of their estate planning. But I also think just more generally speaking, those are great conversations to bring up anytime a client mentions anything about like a milestone event. One of their kids is getting married. They're about to have a grandchild. Any sort of milestone event that's happening is a great time to remind your client that they should look at their estate plan to make sure that it still properly reflects what they want, given whatever this new milestone event is. And that can also then segue into a conversation if there is a disabled loved one that they want to address in their plan. So as an attorney who's worked on these things, I imagine you've seen ones that have worked and and ones that have sadly failed. Obviously, every case, every client, every trust is is a different document. It's a special snowflake, right? 
But yes, can you identify some sort of common areas where they, if they fall down, that that's where they're going to fall down in terms of you know what aspects of the trust that really need to be paid attention, special attention to, where these are the common ones that people mess up. Well, the the key one, and you know, any attorney who has any sort of knowledge in this area is going to know the standard for distributions that you have to set up. As mentioned in the beginning, you can't have distributions that a beneficiary is entitled to. If they're entitled to that, that money will be considered available to them for qualifying for benefits and then disqualify them to the extent that it puts them over any limits. So that's first and foremost, right? You have to get that distribution standard properly in the trust document as just a threshold matter. The other thing that you'll see, though, sometimes is, like you've said, as a drafter and as somebody who's worked in this field for 20 plus years, lack of flexibility hurts in documents, right, across the board. And so one of the things that a lot of attorneys will do that I think is also a great idea is including special needs language in a trust, even if there isn't currently a disabled beneficiary. So if down the line, say you have a grandchild who is disabled, the trust has language in there that allows it to convert to a special needs trust, right? At least as to the beneficiary who has a disability, those sorts of flexibilities, flexibility around who's going to act as trustee and who's going to make those decisions, making sure that person has enough knowledge of decisions, what can disqualify a beneficiary, what can be covered by these trusts, those sorts of things all need to be taken into account. And as you said, I think the biggest things as far as failure goes, not drafting properly, and then probably also choosing a trustee who doesn't know enough about benefits to be able to make sure that they're making the right distribution decisions. You kind of anticipated pretty adroitly uh, my next question there <laughs> in terms of, you know, we're, we're speaking of the obvious easy, quote unquote, no, none of them are easy, but of where it's like, okay, well, here's a child who is either born or very young and has an obvious sort of disability, but that's not necessarily always the case, right? As you mentioned, some people during their life can unexpectedly, sadly, become you know disabled. It's not just a, 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 g- a genetic thing, right? This idea that like any trust, it has to be flexible to, to encompass the ability to allow for the special need to actually develop as opposed to just have already pre-existing is a very interesting point. Exactly. And that's something I think over the years I've seen, as you see more and more trust documents, and I'm sure you can attest to this as well, you start to see the things that work really well. And anytime you can build that flexibility in for things like special needs, for things like substance abuse, for things, all of those sorts of things that can happen, divorce, you know, you don't want to think about them, but you want to allow your documents to adapt as those situations arise and make sure that they are working as well as they possibly can for the beneficiaries, given whatever circumstances may come up down the line. So having that special needs language built in as a sort of default, if it happens, you know, there's no harm in it because it won't take effect unless there is a disabled beneficiary, which could either be a future beneficiary down the line who hasn't been born yet, but will become a beneficiary at some point, or as you noted, a beneficiary who's currently not disabled, but at some point during their life may become disabled. So flexibility is always the key in my mind. And for our audience of advisors, obviously we've veered a bit into estate planning, nerdery, drafting talk here. But the purpose of doing that and then what advisors can actually get from that is that even though attorneys know that they can, they have this bag of tricks that they can sort of pull out and that they know what works and what doesn't, you know, they still don't necessarily have the insight that often the financial advisor, who is generally the closest person, you know, in terms of professionally to the client, could have. So, you know, they need to get 
certain information that the financial advisor may not realize is relevant so that they can then employ their bag of tricks. So it's just to further reinforce, you know, the, the idea that, you know, the financial advisor really needs to get thorough information and then do a really good job in communicating and passing on that information to the drafter. Exactly. And then another thing that I think will often come up with the financial advisor and and maybe less sort of obviously if the client's having a discussion directly with their estate planning attorney is a lot of clients who have a disabled loved one will have very clear ideas as far as philanthropy. You know, if they are philanthropically minded, they will often have want their assets either at the end of the special needs trust or even currently via a private foundation or charitable lead or remainder trust, they'll want to make sure that the organizations and the programs that have been integral to the to the life of their disabled loved one continue to be funded. So it's another thing that's likely to come up with the finance with the financial advisor that then needs to be conveyed to the attorney to make sure that those issues are also addressed in the planning, either via the special needs trust as a remainder beneficiary or via some sort of standalone document to ensure that that those things get funded. Yeah, and actually, this is great that you brought this up. Can you mind just expanding a little bit sort of on what happens at the end it, it, once the, sadly, the need or the, the beneficiary for the special needs trust, you know, since... They're no longer if they're no longer around. What happens to the special needs trusts? With a normal trust, there's sort of there'd be some sort of lump payout or something. Obviously, that can't happen here. So, what does it sort of look like? So, the the nice thing about a special needs trust that's set up by somebody other than the disabled beneficiary is that it is you know sort of an open book as to what you can do with it at the end of the term. So, it can be that if, for example, you have three children and one of them is disabled, that on the death of the one who's disabled, it goes to the other two children. It can be, as discussed, that it goes to a charity or it funds a private foundation or goes into some other piece of the grantor's estate plan. The caveat here is with a special needs trust that is set up by the disabled person themselves. We sort of haven't gone too deeply into that. But the one thing I would say that is really different there is that on the death of the disabled person, if the trust was funded with their own assets, Medicaid can pull back the value of any benefits that the person received during their lifetime. So before anything would go out to another person or charity or any other beneficiary, the Medicaid would have the right to pull back anything that they've paid out during life. Very interesting. And, and you're very right. We haven't really touched on, you know, we, we've gotten, we've been kind of, on the, oh, this is a parent planning for the next generation in, in theory a lot here. But there are situations where, where someone is putting together a special needs trust for themselves. So what do those look like? Exactly. And that can happen either in situations where a beneficiary or a person becomes disabled later in life, right? And so they've already accumulated assets. You know, Christopher Reeve, perfect example. He was already quite wealthy at the time he became disabled, but can also happen if improper planning is done. So a disabled person receives assets outright from an inheritance or a lawsuit or some other, some other thing. And so in those situations, under certain circumstances, there are age requirements, there are some other technical requirements that I don't think we need to go into. But if all of those are met, that person can put their assets into the special needs trust. It will serve the same purpose. Very similarly, they can get receive distributions for all of those things that aren't otherwise covered. The big difference being at the end, Medicaid can dip into whatever's left. Just call back a little bit to something you mentioned earlier. Um, and which is also sort of another 
drum that we bang on this show is you mentioned sort of trustee choice and how important that is, particularly in this context. And it's sort of obviously it's important in all contexts, but I think you know, when people are choosing trustees, much like when they're choosing executors, you know, the temptation is to just choose who's close to you. And with something as complicated as a special needs trust that has as severe a fail case as this, that's even worse an idea than it usually is. It could not agree with you more. That, that is absolutely the case. As a professional trustee, we sort of always talk about the fact that that you need to understand what's happening, but particularly in a case like this, right? It is very easy to disqualify somebody who's a beneficiary of a special needs trust by making a distribution that is improper and that will disqualify them. And, and as you mentioned, that has pretty severe consequences in these cases. So having somebody that knows what they're doing is key. And what I talk about a lot of times with clients, again, generally, and I think this applies even more so here is sometimes having a combination of that close family friend who knows you, who knows the beneficiary, knows what their life has been like, what the expectations are going forward, paired with a corporate trustee who can be the one who has that specialized knowledge and can say, well, hey, you know, that actually is not a distribution that we can make or here's the consequence if we do, and can also take care of all of the record keeping and that sort of thing. So I always feel like that's a pretty good pairing of having the person with the personal knowledge along with the person, the, the company with the specialized knowledge. Yeah, and just to hammer this point home, because I've seen it work this way, and I've seen it not work a very different way. What you're saying is <laughs> to have, very specifically, a professional trustee and a close family friend, not to just have two trustees. Because having two family friends as trustee is just twice as bad most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, that's exactly. And having those two gives you both sides of it, right? It gives you that personal knowledge you know, having an idea of what the grantor's priorities were, how they would have wanted to see this person live, what sort of distributions they would have wanted to see with that person with the specialized knowledge of what does and doesn't work, what will or will not disqualify them, and how those two pieces then fit together. So we're just about running out of time here. I'd like to thank Gina Nelson for just being a fantastic guest and really getting deep into a very complicated but very useful topic. Thank you, Gina. Thank you so much for having me. For all listeners, I'll see you, or I guess you'll hear me, on the next episode of Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. Thank you for listening to the Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InformaWealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.